Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. We're starting a brand new teaching series. It's going to run over the next four weeks, um, which is just, uh, it's just called Jesus in the Picture. And uh, through the ages, um, some of the great artists over time have tried to capture some of the stories of Jesus in art. Now, I've never visited Europe, but I know there's some incredible churches and some incredible museums that depict some of the art from uh, different hi- uh, aspects of history that have tried to capture Jesus in the picture. Today, we're going to look at a story that was captured in art in the 1600s by a Baroque artist named Caravaggio, and he painted this famous painting known as the Supper at Emmaus. And uh, the Emmaus walk or the the road to Emmaus is a really well-known story in the Gospel of Luke, and it's where we're going to start this morning. I'm actually going to jump straight into the text. And just to give you a little bit of context about what we're going to read, Luke 24 starts with the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus has been uh, revealed to people. He's been preaching incredible messages. He's been preaching really countercultural messages. He's been doing incredible signs and wonders. People are getting healed. People are getting delivered. People are, are being uh, spoken over them that their sins have been forgiven. And Jesus is drawing an incredible crowd that's following him and his ministry. And anyway, uh, as time grows, Jesus starts to become very known by the local authorities and those that are in power, both religiously and also uh, civilly. And he starts to confront some of the powers and the authorities. And it lands in this most horrific scene that has become uh, the image and the symbol of the Christian faith, where Jesus is hung on a Roman cross and killed for all to see. Now, crucifixion is a very public and a very gruesome affair. People knew that it went on. It wasn't something that they took away and they did humanely. The whole point of crucifixion was to make a statement and to make a scene and to let anyone else know that if they wanted to consider dissenting against the Roman Empire and the powers that be, that this might be their ultimate fate. So people were always aware of those that were crucified because it was so public. It was a gruesome time in history in which to live. And so with the crucifixion looming large, people that had bought into the story of Jesus and started to follow him uh, understandably started questioning what was going on. But we get to the start of Luke 24, and Luke tells us what is the most incredible part of the story and the most incredible good news for us, and that is that death had no mastery over Jesus, death had no hold over Jesus, and he walked free from the clutches of death. He walked free from that which the Bible says is the wage of sin, which is death, and he walked free into life. It's the resurrection of Christ. It said early on the third day, some of the women went down to the tomb to uh, you know, lay flowers and do the things that they wanted to do at the tomb, and they found that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. And so they had an angelic encounter in the tomb. They raced back and they tell the rest of uh, the group that they were with, the disciples who we know well, that the tomb was empty. And some of the disciples go sprinting down to the tomb to find that the tomb is empty. To this point in Luke's story where I'm about to pick up, Jesus hasn't been bodily seen by anyone yet in Luke's uh, account for the gospel. And he picks it up with two of the disciples heading to a place called Emmaus. Let me read it to you from Luke 24 verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, do you, have you been living in a cave? Jesus is thinking, well, I have for the last three days. You just don't know it yet. What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. In recent years, uh, a new phrase has been coined in the era of selfies. It's the phrase photobombing. Who's ever been photobombed? You know one of those great moments where you've just lined up that perfect photo with your family or, or you know, at a wedding and, and some uh, just completely uh, ignorant stranger walks in the back of your photo. Like I, I googled best photo bombs. Some of them are hilarious, but I could never show them to you in church. But just go and have a look later. Some of the best photo bombs of all time. But all of us have probably been photo bombed. Some of us actually like to make a habit of being a pest and photo bombing other people's photos. I can see some people looking at others in their family right now. Hey, Eric, you just got glared at by your family. But, but we, I remember a few years ago, as a family, we went and visited Uluru. And can I just say, if you have never made the trek to Central Australia, specifically to Uluru, get it on your bucket list somewhere. You might think it's not worth it, but can I just tell you, it's an incredible experience. Anyway, we went there and there's this, what they call the sunset viewing area. And the beauty of the rock is to see the way it transforms its color as the sun sets at different phases as the sun goes down. It, it goes to different shades and depths of that deep orange red color. And so we'd got there early on this day. We'd been there for a few days. We'd already gone to sunset one other night, realized how popular and how crowded it was. So this particular day, we went really early and we found the prime spot where we were going to set up our cameras get some photos, get some great family photos. And uh, we were set. We had our chairs out. We had a picnic rug. We were all having a great time. And then just as it got kind of prime photo time, some guy walks in right in front of us and stations himself on the fence. Now, this wasn't just like you could stumble across this. This was he literally walked into the middle of our picnic and decided that this was the place he was going to take his photos. He had some big whiz-bang expensive uh, camera, which obviously to him meant... I'm legit, get out of my way. But you can see this photo of us trying to line up for a photo, and there he is with his backpack on and his blue thing. You can see the look of contempt in my eyes. You can see Harrison suddenly just looking at this guy, thinking, what's his story? And I won't show you the faces of the rest of the family, but for the next half an hour, as we're trying to get some family photos in front of the rock, we keep just saying to this guy, can you get out of our photo? And he just grunted and take a step to the right. Like it was the most annoying photobomb. We hate it 
when we get photobombed. We also hate it when our iPad goes off in the middle of the message. But we had this really annoying cameraman that kept wanting to get in our photo. There's two guys that are walking on the road to Emmaus after what had been a fairly horrific couple of days. The Bible actually tells us that they were downcast. In verse 17, they stood still, their faces downcast. Why? Because as they're walking along, processing together, some random stranger decides to get in their conversation. Who hates it when people not only want to get in our photos, but want to get in our conversation? And they're trying to process the emotion of the last few days. You see, they said to Jesus as he asked them, even though they didn't recognize who it was, we were filled with such hope. We thought, finally, this might be the moment that we've all been waiting for. Have you been living under a rock? Have you been in a cave? Because if you haven't heard of Jesus of Nazareth, you haven't been living this last little while. And so they start to unpack to Jesus what's going on in their world. I mean, they start a discussion about the times. How do they interpret the times in light of the recent events? Because hope had been growing, but now suddenly hope had been dashed. And they're doing it, as it says, on their way to Emmaus. So we get a sense that these disciples had finally left the home base where they'd all been gathered with the disciples and others in Jerusalem. They're heading home to Emmaus. In their mind, it was game over. See, the first part of the story of Emmaus is a story of hope lost. Questioning and interpreting the times is something that we often do as humans. These two guys are doing it as they walk home to Emmaus. I cannot make sense of the circumstances around me. And I want to suggest to us that in seasons of disruption and uncertainty, we spend more time trying to make sense of the world. I also want to suggest that sometimes people of faith, that we can do this more than others. You see, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus right now are trying to make sense of the world that they're in and the promises of God in light of the current circumstances. And the Bible tells us that hope had been sucked from their story. You know, right now we're living in a season where hope has been sucked from some of our stories. We're living in a time of great disruption of great uncertainty, and many of us are trying to make sense of the world. I want to ask the question this morning of how do we make sense of the events of today? And I'm going to ask your grace just to speak pastorally for a few moments today, because right now the world is swirling with all kinds of commentary, all kinds of interpretation and discussion in an attempt to understand how we make sense of the world as it is right today. This is hitting a great crescendo in faith circles too. I mean, what does it all mean? What does the coronavirus, worldwide lockdowns, shutdowns all mean? Is this a sign of the end? Is this the work of underlying evil forces? Is there a secret conspiracy which we're all blind to? They're all questions that many of us have been asking, and I could go on. But I just want to say this. This isn't the first time that people of faith have drawn this same conclusion. It started that day on the road to Emmaus as these two men had a conversation about how do we make sense of the world when we take stock of everything that's happening. I don't want to delve too far into history, but let me just take us a little bit back to what would have at least been some of the start of some of our lifetimes. But the church has been asking the question, how do we make sense of the world for a long, long time? Let's go back to the 1940s for a minute. 
And it was the kind of the growth of the nuclear age. Countries were uh, building bigger and more powerful atomic bombs, and it all culminated at the end of World War II, where two of them were dropped on civilization, devastating the communities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this started to grow a fear in people. And a book started circulating that was called this, The Atomic Bomb in Prophecy, and started to try and make sense of the events of the atomic age in light of biblical events and prophecy. But the atomic age at that time didn't bring about the end of civilization. We don't know what the future holds. But fast forward a couple of years and suddenly communism started to take off as a a political system within our world. And people started to question, how do we make sense of these times? Is this a sign of something greater? And this book appeared in popular circulation. Gorbachev, has the real Antichrist come? Well, probably the answer to that question is it wasn't Mikhail Gorbachev. So we move on to a great time for me because I was an IT student in 1999 when this incredible thing called the Millennium Bug or Y2K hit our society. Now, let's just... I just want to do an honest thing. Now, some of you young people here, now I know it because I've surveyed my own kids... They had no idea what Y2K was. Just, can I just get a show of hands if you've never heard of the Millennium Bug? <laughs> There's a few. Jordan and Olivia never heard of the Millennium Bug. Well, let me let you into a great time in history. You see, there was a season coming up to the year 2000. I feel like I'm educating all the juniors here right now. There was a season in history that I was alive for. I was an IT student at the time where everybody thought that the coding that they'd put into computers that drove everything from airplanes to buses to traffic light networks to home computers and appliances, that there'd been a fault put in the code where they didn't actually take stock for the change of millennia. And so, you know, they programmed into it that, you know, we'd go from 99 to 100 and, you know, 999, they thought it was just going to go back to 000. So everybody started to freak out thinking that when it clocked over to the new millennium, when you went to the year 2000, that the world was going to fall apart. And planes, this is, you think I'm joking? Talk to your parents later. Planes were going to fall from the sky. Um, Power networks were going to shut down. Traffic lights were going to go into disarray. And the world as we know it was going to end. Now, that is no exaggeration. If you want to read more about it, you can go and find this book. I don't think it's available anymore in popular bookstores, but it's called The Millennium Meltdown. And by this stage in Christian... Uh, literature, even the artwork was getting a little bit more confronting. I mean, this takes me back to when I was about 14 and I watched a a movie that was produced called, um, I can't even remember what it was called, but I know that Larry Norman's I Wish We'd All Been Ready was the soundtrack to it. And this was all the imagery that came with the time. It, it, It bred great fear. Millennium meltdown, spiritual and practical strategies to survive Y2K. Go and do a school assignment on the Millennium Bug. It was a big deal at the time. I remember being at a prayer meeting the week before, staring at the sky as planes flew over, thinking, I wonder what this looks like next week. Just a little hint, it was all good. (laughs) It was all good. 20 years yesterday, we uh, remembered the horror of uh, the collapse of the Twin Towers and just that horrific terrorist attack on US soil. But once again, it it spawned a great sense of panic and fear. A a book called The 9-11 Prophecy started to do circulation. Let me read to you what it 
the blurb on it was, in July 2000, God sent a watchman to Madison Square Garden in New York with warning of an imminent surprise attack that would be a sign pointing to the end times. When this very thing happened 14 months later on 9-11, it proved to be God's terrible catalyst to begin the end times right before our eyes. The 9-11 prophecy tells a remarkable testimony of the watchman who was sent to New York City at the millennium. With amazing irrefutable proof from scripture, history and providence, it shows how 9-11 set in motion two of the most crucial end time prophecies and how these specific prophecies will lead to America's fall before the rise of an Islamic antichrist in this very generation. That's the blurb off the book. You see, people try to make sense of the times. That moved forward in US history and people decided that Gorbachev wasn't the Antichrist, but maybe the current US president was. And so a book came out called Obama, Prophecy in the Destruction of the US. And in an attempt to really cover all bases, the byline said this, is Barack Obama fulfilling biblical Islamic Catholic Kenyan and other American-related prophecies? I, I, I think you get the picture I'm trying to get. Now, I just want to make it really clear, I've not read any of these books. So my comment isn't about their content. There might actually be some valuable content or insight or it might be written from a different perspective than maybe what the cover suggests. I'm not making a comment about content. The reality is there are things that are happening in our world right now that we need to be discerning of, but we need to be careful how we interpret the times and the commentary we place on it. You know, as Christians, we know that one day Jesus will return. He himself said it. He said this in Matthew 24. Watch out, no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginnings of birth pains. We can look at the times that we live in and we can see some of the marker posts and some of the rumors at the end, but ever since the time of Jesus, people could see the end drawing near. You jump on Wikipedia, there'll be a little video that I don't expect you to read, but let's have a look, and you type in wars throughout history, what you're seeing is the Wikipedia list of wars that have happened since the time of Jesus, and I stopped at the year 1000 AD. Throughout history, wars have begun and started and ended right through our lifetime, but right through all of history. And the Bible says, Jesus himself says, these will be signposts or birth pains of the end. And just as the two disciples walked the road to Emmaus and looked at the world around them and tried to interpret the times, we have to be careful that when we become overwhelmed with what's happening in our world, that it doesn't start to do something in us and through us that takes the distraction away from the thing that matters most, keeping our eyes on Jesus. You see, the problem the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had was this, and it's the thing that we've got to be careful of ourselves. And that is if you try and interpret too much of what's happening in the world around you, what's swirling, it can become a huge distraction to see the very thing that's right before your eyes. Jesus, Jesus photobombed their moment and they didn't recognize who was in the picture. You see, it can become a great distraction. It, it can breed something else in us that's really unhealthy and that's, uh, it can breed suspicion in us. We start to look at others and we start to look at, at leaders and organizations and we can start to just build this suspicion in us that stops us actually trusting and leaning in. 
Now, I think you know, Jesus says this himself, be as innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. We need to live with a wise and a discerning spirit. But some of us have locked ourselves off from the world because of the suspicion that's growing in our spirit because we've taken our eyes off the things that matters most and started to try and read into everything happening in the world around us. More than that, it can actually breed, and I think this is the greatest danger for many of us, a deep fear in us. I read you the blurb from that book because it, it, it just bred fear in people. I want to give you great news about what the Bible says in the end. Because of what happened in Luke 24, the first couple of chapters, that Jesus walked free from the clutches of sin and death, he's already got the victory. So the end doesn't need to be feared because if you're found in Christ, the end is actually a joyful, great victory, not something to be feared. Let's not as Christians become people that are so overwhelmed with all the bad things that we fear are going to happen that we forget that we stand in the place of victory. Don't let fear rule your heart. In this season right now, as you try to make sense of everything going on in the world around us, don't let fear rule your heart. Because if you're in Christ, you're already on the winning side. And even though the Bible isn't, it's not easy to interpret. The picture we get as we read about what is to come is that there's going to be some stuff get really messed up. But guess what? So is the impact and the light and the mission of Jesus Christ on this earth. There's going to be a lot of mess, but there's going to be a whole lot of healing and wholeness come into the picture. Sometimes we look at it and think it's all going to be mess, 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 mess. Ah, the Bible doesn't say that. It says as the end draws in here, so does the light of the resurrected Christ. Don't live in fear. But sometimes we live in fear because the thing we fill ourselves with is every latest article and everything that someone else has written or everything that someone's predicted is going to happen. And we just fill our minds with this stuff that actually distracts us from the thing that matters most. Don't let your heart be overtaken with fear. The problem for those two guys on the road to Emmaus is the Bible says that their hearts were downcast because as they tried to make sense of the time, their hearts were filled with fear. I also just want to speak to those of us that are believers in the room for just a moment. We've got to be really, really wise in what we choose to throw out publicly as we try to discern these times together because it can have a great effect on our witness. Because you went to the Amazon comments of some of the books that I wrote here. The one that probably is the most left of center because we've all lived through it and we know there was nothing in it was Y2K, the millennium bug. Someone wrote this as a review for that Christian book. I strongly disagree with one of the reviewers when she claims that not as much as a light bulb burned out on Y2K, when clearly this is a false statement. I remember that a fluorescent light in my kitchen burned out on Y2K, thus proving that the end is near and that the aforementioned reviewer will likely suffer the eternal hellfire. <laughs> now, it's humorous on one level, but you know what's disturbing on the other? Is if we're not careful about the rhetoric we put out, the thing that is damaged is the witness we have 
that Jesus is Lord. He's walked free from the clutches of sin and death. He wants to forgive you. He wants to make you whole. He's got a great future for you. You don't need to look at the circumstances that surround you right now and fear because Jesus has got it. And whatever rises and whatever falls and whatever kingdoms come and whatever kingdoms disappear and whatever rulers rule and whatever laws change and whatever persecution we face and whatever things stand against us, it's okay because we already have the victory with the one who's walked free from the clutches of sin and death. So do not fear. Instead of people going, man, those Christians are wacky. I want nothing to do with their God. So can I just ask us to be wise? Because Jesus has put us here and is keeping us here and hasn't brought the end about yet because there's a broken world out there that doesn't yet know that Jesus is good and that Jesus wants to save and redeem them. And he's put us here not to get worried about everything else that's swirling around us, but to focus in on the good news, the gospel message, that Jesus is the hope of the world. You see, the very thing the two men on the road to Emmaus was missing was that the stranger that photobombed their moment was Jesus. Let me read the rest of the story from verse 25. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. I just want us to get this for a minute. These were people the Bible tells us were disciples. These were people that had sat under the ministry of Jesus, sat at the foot of Jesus, heard his teaching, observed his life, heard him speak about the purpose of his life, yet they missed it. They missed it. They'd interpreted it all wrong when he said this temple is going to get destroyed and rebuilt in the third day. You know, do not fear. You know, I've come and I'm going to overcome the world. All the things that Jesus said about himself, they missed it. And because he's humanized, they looked at it and said, yeah, but all we can see is Jesus, the guy making all these statements, hung on a Roman cross. That doesn't look like victory. But now their hearts are overwhelmed because the women came and told them that, yeah, the guy on the cross that they put in that tomb is now no longer in the tomb. And so they don't know what to do with the Christ that has been crucified, but the tomb that is empty. And Jesus says, I know, I know you've been with me, but now let me make it clear. And so he steps them through the biblical story and helps them see all the scriptures had to say about what he would do. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Imagine in that moment, you just realized you've encountered the risen Christ. I mean, this has got to be the greatest moment in your life, doesn't it? That right at the beginning of the new age that was ushered in with the resurrection of Jesus, these guys share a meal with him. And it wasn't until he broke bread and gave it to them that they recognized who he was. And it says they recognized and he disappeared from their sight. And then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? Then listen to what happened. They got up at once and went to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he's appeared to Simon. 
Then the two told them what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Verse 36, And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. And this is the word of God in some of our hearts today. If your heart is overwhelmed with fear, if you look at the world in which you live and hope is being sucked from your story, if you wonder what it all means, if you wonder where God is, if you wonder what's going on, if you fear what the future holds, Jesus wants to walk into your picture and bring his peace. He's right there in the picture with you. See, some of us are so filled with fear about the times that we're missing the fact that Jesus is right there in our picture. Some of us are losing hope, but we're missing the fact that Jesus is right there in your picture. If you're not a believer here today, I just want to encourage you that Jesus is the one person that can help you make sense of the world. When you discover his life and his love and his story and his grace and his forgiveness and what he achieved for you through his death on the cross and through walking free from the clutches of death, you'll discover something that's going to make sense of the world. I want to encourage you that if you've never begun that journey, the Christian life is, there's a moment that we have where we make the decision to surrender ourselves to the story of Jesus, where we invite him to actually be the one who's in control. And I'm going to give you a moment right at the end to give you the chance to make that step. But it's actually a journey of just discovering how Jesus will make sense of your world and bring hope into your story. Jesus can help us make sense of the world. Me and Jordan to come up as we bring our time to a close this morning. I just want to make three statements to bring this all together for us. In the midst of everything that's going on in our world right now, don't lose hope because Jesus is in the picture. Don't get distracted or overwhelmed or filled with fear by the circumstances that swirl around you because Jesus is in the picture. Jesus is the one that's going to help you make sense of the world. Jesus is the one that's going to walk in to your hopelessness and speak hope and peace back into your picture. See, it's not, it's not a coincidence that the minute these two people discover that it's actually Jesus with them, that they get off the road to Emmaus and head back on the road to Jerusalem. Because they left Jerusalem devoid of hope, but then they returned filled with it. They left the point where everyone had gathered and was meeting together and was the epicenter of the new thing that God was doing. And they decided that the final chapter had been written. And so they left Jerusalem and they headed to Emmaus. But on the road to Emmaus, they were trying to make sense of why in Jerusalem there was an empty tomb. And then guess what? Jesus appeared with them in Emmaus. And the first thing they do is pack their bags and get back on the road back to Jerusalem. You see, when you discover that Jesus is still in your picture, it's going to take away from all the things that are going to distract you from the purpose that he's called you to. And it's going to refocus you on the mission that he's given to you. To bring hope, to bring healing, to bring grace, to bring compassion, to bring kindness, to bring goodness, to bring peace, to help people experience the joy of God in the midst of really dire circumstances. To help people know that they're forgiven even when they've messed up significantly. 
to help people know that they're called to be part of a family so they don't have to be isolated and alone. See, this is the message of hope that we bring. God hasn't called us to get distracted by all the other stuff. He's just called us to be reminded that he's in the picture because he walked free from the clutches of death. So now let's invest all of our time not into worrying about everything else that's going on around us. Let's be as innocent as doves but as wise as serpents. But let's just pour ourselves into sharing the message of hope with a world that as of yet hasn't got Jesus in their picture. Lord God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that on the third day, the tomb was empty. Death has been defeated. The power of sin has been broken. Forgiveness isn't a concept. It's something that we can all realize. Lord, all of us have a glorious inheritance that can only be found in you. Jesus, I want to pray, Lord, in in this season that we're in right now, that, that, Lord, those of us that have hearts that are filled with fear, God, that you would just speak your peace. But, God, we as your church wouldn't get distracted by all the, the, the things that we could find to try and make sense of what's going on. But, God, we would just find ourselves squarely in the mission that you've called us to, of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, speaking of your love and your grace and your justice and your peace and your joy your hope, your grace. Hey, just while we're praying this morning, if you've never started that journey of doing life with Jesus, uh, I just, I reckon for some of you, he's been walking alongside you for a long time that you've just never recognized him. Today, he just wants to help make himself known to you. And he wants to invite you into a brand new life of serving and following him. So if you're here today and you've never taken that first step of making the decision to surrender to your life and to invite Jesus to be the one who is your Lord and your Savior, the one that brings hope into your story, I'd just like to pray for you and then we're going to connect at the end of the service and we're just going to you know, set you on this incredible journey of following Jesus. But if that's you here this morning, you've never taken that first step, just so I can pray for you while everyone else is just in an attitude of prayer. And if you're a regular part of this place, you're a follower of Jesus, you pray right now. But if that's you, can I just ask just so I can see, can you just raise your hand? Because I'd love to pray with you this morning. You're going to start a brand new adventure that's filled with hope. Where you're going to discover the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus that's going to transform you. Is there anyone here that wants to take that step this morning? Just, just wave long enough that I can acknowledge you and I'm going to pray for you. a couple more seconds. Is there anyone here this morning? Is this your day? Is this your moment? It's cool, church. Let's jump on our feet. Hey, everyone jump on your feet. Let's go. As we finish this morning, just the prayer that I've got in my heart is I reckon there's some of us who have been so overcome with fear. We've just allowed our, our hearts and our minds to be filled with stuff that just just fills us with fear. We fear tomorrow. We fear next week. We fear, you know, the next government announcement. We fear what's happening across the world. And, and oh, there's, there's reality and there's, we, we live in a messed up, broken world. There's a lot of mess and there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of things that we could fear. But 
Jesus is in your picture and what he wants to do is fill you with his hope and with his peace. So if you're here this morning and the thing that's overwhelming your life right now is fear, we'd love to pray for you today that that would be broken and that God would fill you with his peace, God would fill you with his hope and God would fill you with a new joy in which you'll face tomorrow. So as Jordan's going to minister to us in a song that some of us might have heard but we've never sung here before, if you don't know the words, just let the words of the song minister to you today. If you want to sing along, you're welcome to. But if you'd like for us to pray with you, can I just invite you just to have the courage? One of our great prayers as a church is that as people come in this space, they may just receive the touch of heaven. They may know that God's eyes upon them, that God might just minister to you in an incredible way through his people. So as we're singing, if you just want us to pray for you this morning, why don't you make your way forward? Everyone else, just let Jordan minister to you in this space. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and our locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.